Hey everybody, and welcome to Crime and Spirits Podcast, your one-stop shop for spooky stories, handcrafted cocktails, and all things true crime. I'm your host, Bree. And I am your other host, Suze. I'm also the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits. Because not only do we bring you a new case or topic of interest every week, but we also teach you a little something about mixology along the way. I mix up a drink that ties in in some way with our theme for the week and then walk you through how to make one for yourself so you can sip right along with us. We've been friends for years and one of our favorite things to do is mix up something delicious and throw on a true crime documentary, which is basically what this podcast has become. It is, however, better research than that. We promise. (laughs) Cross our hearts. We also have a script written out that we mostly follow. Mostly. Still, you can expect some tangents here and there. We also managed to find a way to mention Criminal Minds at least once, if not multiple times, per episode. Gotta give Dr. Spencer Reed all the love. Yes, girl. And you also can't forget the cursing, because we definitely curse on this show. We try to keep things a little bit more conversational. Think less like Dateline and more like Girls' Night. Just replace the catty gossip with actual facts. And maybe just a little catty gossip. So come hang out with us, learn a little something with us every Sunday, and make sure to join us on Instagram or Facebook at Crime and Spirits Pod. That is the word and. We'd love to chat with you about, I mean, whatever, really, but mostly true crime. So buckle up, buttercups. Sip tight. And let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to Crime and Spirits Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Thank you guys so much for joining us for a cocktail today. Suze and I have to admit that we were really stupid last week. We're dumb. We're real dumb. Oh my god. We're <laughs> so, so dumb. We both had epiphanies mm-hmm. individually at completely different moments yep. that the whiskey that we used... <laughs> The ET-51. Get it? ET-51. Extraterrestrial Area 51. It's not skeletons, guys. It's supposed to be aliens. <laughs> Which I didn't even think of, but now looking back on it makes total sense. I just don't understand how it didn't click in the moment. We were so fucking dead set. Especially because we love that kind of shit. So yes. like that kind of conspiracy craziness mm-hmm. should have been like... Duh. Should have been a dead ringer, but yeah, it wasn't. What are you do? But hey, you know, we learned. We did. I was listening to our episode last week and laughing my ass off at us because I was like, man, we are so convinced that they, they <laughs> fucked it up. <laughs> like, like that they accidentally made the stopper look like an alien instead yeah, of a skull. Like that was their bad. Duh. <laughs> but, you know, the more you learn, guys. The more you know. <laughs> if you haven't already caught on, that's our whole like theme for the year. Yeah, we're learning. We're learning all kinds of things. Bree has learned a new um, audio editing technique. Hell yeah, I did. So hopefully this is coming through crystal clear and or at sounding least, wonderful. At least much better than it was previously. Yes. I'm working on it. We're learning some shit, you guys. I don't think it's going to do anything to help this voice of mine right now. Oh, stop it. <laughs> I seem to have caught whatever kind of icky weirdness is going around. Yeah. I feel fine. I just feel like I need to cough all the time. And it oh, no. is lowered my voice register several octaves i feel oh no i feel very like yeah <laughs> very she's the man right now Stop it. <laughs> i i feel very sinusy myself but it's the weather change for those of you who are local to our area you already know it went from 50 to like 19 in 12 hours and then back again and then back again well and last weekend when i was in pittsburgh it was 50 and yeah. sunny and then i got home and it was 30 and now it's 
15 it's or like 20, two. whatever. It's so, so fucking cold it's out. It's supposed to set, it could possibly set records for cold tomorrow. Oh, so. great. Love that. <laughs> we have it. a wedding this weekend, so it's super perfect that we feel like garbage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's on brand for us, I Absolutely. think, actually. <laughs> but we're going to go. We're going to have fun. Congrats, Bud and Jill. By so the time excited. you guys are listening, it will be officially official. Oh, yeah, it yeah. will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and we're not wearing snowsuits. We're going to dress up. Yeah, I bought a new blazer top thing. It's not quite a blazer, but not quite a blouse. I don't really know. I got it on Amazon. It's it looks cute. cute. I bought a sweater dress because it's Buffalo in February, so I would like to be warm, please. Thank you. I'm neurotic, so I'll probably <laughs> still go shopping tomorrow and look for something as a backup just because that's... I do have a backup for my dress just in yeah. case because you never know. I'm going to bring like six you pairs never of know. shoes. A crisis could occur. Something <laughs> could happen. It could unravel or fall apart. I and don't know. We're not going to be in town, so exactly. that's part of the panic. I know nothing be... about Buffalo either, so yeah. that's going to be fun. And we're in charge of things because why, why you thought that was a good idea, but I'll never understand. We're but, very you know. detail oriented. Yeah, I am. I will, <laughs> she doesn't look like she has faith in us. But It'll be fine. I have this. faith. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a week, but I'm really excited to be together. This is my favorite thing to do. I look forward to our time together with you guys, hanging out, talking some true crime. And I'm really excited about the topic today. It's true. Because this week we are going to be diving into the life and crimes of America's no- most notorious gangster, Mr. Al Capone himself, which will lead us to the technically unsolved St. Valentine's Day massacre. Which I did not know until I researched this. Right? So if you guys joined us before, you already are aware of my fascination with mafia shit. I just am obsessed with it. I enjoy learning about it. Just how it is, guys. And this episode's kind of sort of an extension of our previously released episode about prohibition if you've heard that you noticed that we said we wanted to do like more deep dives into this particular topic so this is just one of the ways that we're doing that because i think we mostly were like february means valentine's day yeah means crimes either of passion or with valentine's day in the name that's kind of here we are. <laughs> Happy February, guys. <laughs> so basically, today's episode is just an overview of the crimes that Al Capone may or may not have committed. Uh, we're going to be talking about some things that are more of a violent nature, like assassinations, beatings, etc., etc. When I was doing the research, I was like, dear God, everybody is killing everyone. It's the wild, no holds, wild. <laughs> no holds barred. Nobody cared at oh, all. Nobody cared at all. It's a lot of gun violence. <clears throat> so just be aware as we get into things. We do our best to bring you detailed and factual information without painting you too much of a picture. Like an icky, gross, disgusting, bloody picture, right. which is what these crimes so often frequently involve. Yep. Um, we do go into the creation of this podcast with nothing but the best intentions and nothing but respect for all of those involved in any of the cases that we cover. This one also. Right. We're just here to have a good conversation while enjoying an even better cocktail, and we're thrilled that you guys want to come on that journey with us. So please make sure that you're following the podcast on the gram and a few other social media sites. That's going to be where you find your bar stock list in addition to the full drink recipes and how-to videos. I have also recently discovered not just editing but the amazing program that is Canva. So now all I want to do is make like fancy social media posts. So watch out, guys. We're looking pretty fly. I have a whole saved folder started. But stick around at the end. We'll make sure you guys know where to find that and us and all of the things. But before we get going even further, we need a drink. It's We absolutely do. 
Um, so if you've never heard of Al Capone or the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, you are in for a disgusting treat. <laughs> I was going to say, it's, is it a treat? I it's mean, just, <laughs> if you like true crime, I think it's a yes, treat. because it's crazy how things went down, long mm-hmm. story short. Um, I always think of Dick Tracy when I think of gangsters. Okay. I can the, see that. The cars, the whole nine yards. We actually were just at the Packard Museum in Warren, oh, yeah. Ohio. And I walked in and I was like, holy shit, they had a big cutout of Al Capone. I'm not sure if he favored Packards or what, but some hmm. of their 1920s styles vehicles were like gangster. That's, okay. That's what I think of when I think of like old time gangsters. Like they were made for people like Al Capone yep, in absolutely. mind. They were roomy and flashy and the hubcaps mm. were flashy and the hood ornaments were flashy. And Al Capone loves some flash. He did love his bling bling. <laughs> he for, really for did. certain. He made lots of money and he was not shy about showing that fact you know, off. Who, I mean nobody was gonna well a few people messed with him but for the most part he was safe. Why not right? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I, um, in my head had like some kind of martini in our brains. Um, in my brain anyway. <laughs> I don't know why I just think of martinis when I think of gangsters. I'm sure they probably yeah. didn't drink martinis, but whatever. Well, I mean, martini was, I think, popular, we learned during like the Prohibition era. And that's when a lot of these guys had their come ups, at least Al Capone specifically. So well, I, really- I think that tracks. Nobody wanted to drink just booze on the rocks because half the time I was gross. It was that rock gut bullshit. Al Capone, I'm sure, was drinking the good shit. Oh, of course. Since he was in charge of all that. Right. (laughs) But in my brain, I was like, we need a martini. So I got on Google. I got on Pinterest. I found a blood orange. Mm. Apparently blood oranges are a thing in cocktails now. Um at work, I have a normal orange as a garnish. It's literally, you know, you all know what, what a normal, yeah. normal orange looks like. Well, they accidentally sent us blood oranges. Mm. So I cut them in the citrus cutter, and they looked like grapefruits. They're that yeah. bright red flesh color, but the outside literally just looks like a normal orange. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the wrong thing. Everybody tried them and was like, this is the best orange I've ever had. So I was like, okay, let's, let's research blood oranges. So... They're literally blood-colored inside. Yes, the they really are. is blood-colored. Um, they apparently have a lot of anthocyanins, oh. which give them their color. These are present in many other um, flowers and fruits, but normally not citrus-related. Mm, we're getting scientific today, guys. Apparently, they're also a type of antioxidant. Oh, so they're good for you. They're known for their anti-cancer properties above oh, all things. So interesting. They help your body reduce damage from free radicals, decreasing the chance that the cells will become cancerous. Good to know. All I'm right. now a gigantic fan of We are going oranges. to be putting this into our diets immediately. Right? And, <laughs> and they taste really good because I read it tasted more like a berry with citrus notes than citrus, which so is interesting. Accurate. I don't think I've had a blood orange before, it's, so I'm it's excited. Sweet. It's very sweet. It's very pretty. I actually juiced these myself. She sure did. Because I could not find blood orange juice, and also that has a bunch of shit in it. This Shout out. This literally just <laughs> cut it in half and went... Shout out to my mother-in-law for randomly giving us a juicer. Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> Thanks, Mark Lisa. was like, we have a juicer. Because I was at Wegmans picking up the oranges and they wanted, I'm sorry, I'm going to sound like a cheap old lady. They wanted $12.99 <laughs> for a citrus juicer. And well, I was and like, we're not doing that. It was a handheld, not like fancy one. I right. don't know. I'm with you. Um, and I was like, surely the Dollar Tree will have them. They do not. So if you're curious, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> so what I bought was one of those... Um, 
like X, not even an X, like star-shaped, like meat <laughs> thingies. Meat mixers. Yes. And I was like, worst case scenario, I'll cut it in half and just squish it into a bowl. I love it. And then strain it. We're going to try that out one of these days. Blooper reel. It's true. <laughs> I was like, if nothing else, Brie, this will just be hilarious to watch later. Oh, I'm on board. <laughs> So, apparently, like I said, blood oranges have become popular in cocktails. The color of the juice, the flavor of the fruit, like, all of it is just really good with cocktails. So, we're going to put this blood orange juice into a sidecar. Mmm. Right. So, traditionally, a sidecar is any cocktail made with cognac, orange liqueur, and lemon juice. Um, A sidecar, if you don't know, is also a motorcycle add-on that allows a passenger to ride next to the motorcycle rather than right behind the driver. Mm. It always creeped me out because they're basically riding at road level. You are on the ground. I just envision so much gravel in your face. (laughs) I can't imagine that being fun. Sounds horrible. So allegedly the sidecar drink got its name from either a French or an English bar, both of whom claim to have invented the cocktail for a customer who arrived at the location in the sidecar of a motorcycle. Oh, okay. Allegedly. Pretty literal then. Allegedly. It's <laughs> been around it's been quotes. around for years and years and years. It showed up in the old cocktail books apparently multiple times. So it's been around for yeah. a while. Sidecars on motorcycles have also been a thing for a while. So that makes sense. Who knows? It's all coming together. Um, I did read online another way the drink may have gotten its name is in reference to the mixture that's left in the shaker after you strain and fill the glass. It's poured into a shot glass on the side and is known as a sidecar. I've had that before. Because I've had, if you've ever gotten, like, uh, the Italian margarita I feel at Olive Garden came with Di Sirono on the side. You Mm -hmm. could either shoot it or add it. Like, it was your kind of call thing. Yes. That, to me, is a sidecar. Yeah. That's what I, honestly, that's what I always assumed that they were. I didn't realize that there was also a cocktail. Right. Apparently, it's normally made with cognac. We're using brandy. Hmm. We got the good old... Christian Brothers, Ayy. the original, the OG. I once drank it with my neighbor out of a coffee mug. You have a lot of these stories, mm-hmm. and I enjoy it. <laughs> Just my neighbor, the one day I got home, and he was like, you look like you need a drink. And I was like, yeah, it's been a rough day. And he was like, here you go. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> he was like, oh, it's Christian Brothers. I was like, what is that? And <laughs> Please he was elaborate. like, it's brandy. And I was like, all right, great. And here we go. Mm-hmm. It's better in a drink than it is by itself. I'm just going to put that out there. Just saying. It was also on sale at the liquor store. Hey, y'all are in We PA. love that. Yeah. So to make this drink, we're chilling the glassware. We are using the coupe glasses, the pretty fancy little champagne glasses. You can also use martini glass. If you want to rim it with sugar, I would recommend that because it really does add something to the drink. Mm. And um, it looks pretty too. In addition to the brandy, we're using Cruzan rum, which is, this is hilarious. The name on the label is Hurricane Proof Aged Rum. It is 137 proof. I took the <laughs> sippiest of sips. Literally the smallest sip I think I've ever taken of anything she in my said, life. Wow, And I, I had a very interesting <laughs> she was like, interaction oh with that liquor. Ooh, oh, boy. <laughs> very strong. It is good in the drink. I would never do it as a shot yeah. probably ever again. I don't recommend doing that. <laughs> it's definitely good in a drink. I think it's like if you're batting down for a hurricane, yeah. you take that with you. It'll I mean, fair. At least keep you occupied you for a while. You will be entertained. <laughs> um, and then we're also using Cointreau, which is just a clear orange liqueur. Into your shaker tin filled with ice, add one ounce of the brandy, half an ounce of the rum, half an ounce of the Cointreau, half an ounce of your 
squeezed blood orange juice. If you can find it in a bottle, by all means, test it out. Yeah. Uh, a whole bag of blood oranges was four fifty at Wegmans, so. Probably cheaper than getting a processed juice, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah, and I think I used two. Yeah. So, like, to me, that that's worth it. And yeah. I'll probably eat the rest of them because they're fucking delicious. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then you just need a quarter an ounce of lime juice. We use the bottled stuff. If you want to squeeze it, feel free. Get but fancy if you want. I was buying blood oranges. I wasn't about to be buying limes. Well, we already had it. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. all about using what we've got. We try. We try anyways. We trying. Trying to. <laughs> um, so anyways, just put it all in the shaker tin. Shake it all until it's nice and chilled and well combined. And then just strain it into your prepared glass. If you want to garnish your drink with a little wheel of blood orange, feel free. I had some extra, so ours is fancy. Ooh. It's so good, right? Mm. That's really orangey mm-hmm. in a very delicious way. Right. In like a sweet kind of way. The sugar definitely does help. I can see. Because they recommended when I read online with a, a regular sidecar, since yeah. it's lemon and cognac, you would want the sugar. I think the sugar is just a nice accent. If you mm-hmm. don't like, you know, the rim on your glass, don't do it. You, it's all I, you personal know I preference. I shit all over the I know. Rim. That's why I was like, <laughs> he loves it. We're trying it. That is delicious. Mm. Two thumbs up. Heck yeah, 10 Thank out of 10. Thank you, Pinterest and Google. We love you. I love Pinterest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Are we ready to get into shit? Yes. So, you might find this really surprising, guys, but Al Capone <laughs> got into the gang scene quite early in life. Like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Which is unfortunately not uncommon for a lot of kids of lesser financial means, both then and now, especially ones that were born to immigrants. Unfortunately, both then and now. What I learned about gangs is that there's always been people hating each other for things like, oh my gosh, you're Irish and I'm Italian. That is that is basis enough for hatred and murder. Like it's it insane is just mind boggling. It has always been that way. Like one of the very first documented gangs in the United States literally was a bunch of Irishmen who didn't want immigrant Irishmen to be here or something like that. I can't quite remember. I learned a lot in the last week. <laughs> that sounds right, though. But it was just insane. Well, especially back then, you literally knew because so many people were fresh off the boat. Right. They still had the accents. They still had the old world ways, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he was the fourth child born to his parents out of nine. Nine. It's too many kids. So his older siblings were born in Italy. He was born in America. So he was part of the first generation of Americans for the family. His parents, Gabriel and Teresa, immigrated in 1893 from Angri, a town in Spain. I said it like angry. I I Googled it. Angry Italy. I Googled it and I listened to it 15 (laughs) times so I would know. I am sick of getting this shit wrong. I am committed to make sure I can pronounce things. I love it. You guys, it's all about self-improvement over here. We're working so hard. (laughs) So hard. So this town was in the, well, is in the province of Salerno, Campania, southern Italy. His father was a barber, his mother a seamstress, and the family settled at 95 Navy Street in Brooklyn, New York. Now, per Mario Gomez, he is the head of My Al Capone Museum, he said that, quote, the Capones weren't born criminals. They participated in church events, fundraisers, and feeding the poor. Which has always been a thing that I've read about Al Capone. Like, he may have been a ruthless gangster, but he was also sort of like a 
Robin Hood. I was just going to say, they equated him to Robin Hood a lot. Except he was the rich. Yeah, he was the rich. But he was still giving to the poor, at least. Yeah. So I I guess I can't split hairs there. Al Capone is one of these people who I didn't think would fit into our little, like, list of bad guys who have, like, this such an interesting dichotomy to them mm-hmm. as people. Al Capone is very that. He really is. It was right. very interesting. I did the research and I was like, hmm, <laughs> I did not know half of these things. Yeah. If not more. Weird, right? So, little Al was a bright kid, but he definitely had an issue with authority. He did not do well with the structure of the Catholic school that he was enrolled in, and he was obviously, if you're not guessing by now, expelled Mm -hmm. by the age of 14. He actually hit a teacher in the face. After that altercation and his subsequent loss of school, he worked odd jobs here and there, mostly just to fill his time. At places like the candy store or the local bowling alley, but his interests ultimately led elsewhere, like semi-professional baseball, which I didn't know. Right? Um, His older brother, Ralph, started playing for the Algerians in 1912 when he was 18. Al was five years younger at the time and followed Ralph everywhere. This translated to a mutual love for baseball. And the pair started playing for St. Michael's in 1916 before forming their own thing called the Al Capone Stars in 1918. Meanwhile, he was serving in the more prominent quote-unquote kid gangs. He first joined the South Brooklyn Rippers in his early preteens. Not too long after that, he was initiated into the 40 Little Thieves. They have the best names. I love it. I'm like, this sounds so, like, old-timey. like The 40 Little Thieves. Fisticuffs in the street. Much cuter than it oh, was. Oh, yeah, no, it was horrible. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it at no. all. Um, the 40 Little Thieves was actually a much more prestigious gang that was basically just like a junior, like, varsity version of the more notorious <laughs> Five Points gang, which, if you know anything, mm. them some bad guys. Mm-hmm. Five Points gang is like college ball, <laughs> and then the 40 Little right? Thieves was like high school. If that. Yeah. Little gritters. So from here, he went to the James Street Boys, which was a gang led by Johnny Torrio. Johnny was a brothel and saloon keeper who rose through the ranks and eventually became a racket boss, which I learned basically means he oversaw, like, the extortion department. There were some terms that I was like, what? Mm -hmm. They're very intense with their structure. They take it very seriously. I think that's part of what I find so fascinating about this is the organized part of organized crime. Absolutely. Because I am not organized in any part of my life, let alone to run, like, an entire crime syndicate. It's just wild. <laughs> like, like whole regions of the United States were just run ruthlessly by these people. I'm almost impressed right? if it wasn't so terrible. If it wasn't for the horrible part of it. <laughs> right. So... The James Street Boys were allies of the Five Points gang, which was led by Paul Kelly. This gang was a group formed by, like, the coming together of members that belonged to other disbanded gangs. So this is kind of like Paul initiating the next generation of criminals, if you will. Into, like, the gang life. Yeah. He opened, I can't remember if it was, like, a boxing gym or something along those lines after he got out of jail. And that's when he started meeting people like Johnny Torrio. I would say boxing to me sounds right up there, Allie. So, an interesting fun fact about Paul Kelly is that's not his real name. He actually changed it. He's Italian. But he changed it to sound Irish. 
How and took over the Five Points Gang or formed it. Or I that was lost in translation, but nonetheless, super interesting. Well, also, people that were in charge were often not in charge for that long. Right, didn't last very long at all. So he's the one that got Johnny into the life, as well as a man <laughs> named Frankie Yale, both of whom had adopted Kelly's way of doing things. These men took a more "quote unquote" refined approach to being a professional criminal, if you will, they tended to look at themselves as businessmen. To them, the extortion, protection, violence, and murder were all just a part of that business. (coughs) This was something that Al took to very well, especially under the tutelage of his mentors. Johnny ends up moving to from New York to Chicago in 1909 to work under the crime boss there his name was Big Jim Calissimo. I love Big Jim. I love that. That made me like, okay. So until their paths cross again, Al continues to work under Frankie Yale. See, Frankie owned and operated several brothel and gambling houses, but once he got into the ice business, he was making money hand over foot. This gave him the capital to open the Harvard Inn, a bar located in Coney Island, which is a tourist trap and still mm-hmm. is to this day, I believe. I've mm-hmm. never been, but I have heard. Um, this is essentially where Al began his work for the Five Points gang themselves. Frankie hired him as a bouncer and as basically just some muscle. Uh, Yale didn't like to get his own hands dirty. That's what he hired other people for. This is a popular strategy among organized criminals. We see this a lot with, like, the murder, the hired murderers and yep. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What was his name? Whitey Bulger. Yep. All he did was kill people for yeah. other people. <laughs> for money. Okay, great. Assassins, hitmen, all yeah, that kind of stuff. any part of it. Yeah. Um, Frankie Yale was known to be brutal in his business dealings. He actually once beat the shit out of his teenage brother for lying uh, his brother was beaten so badly, he actually had to be hospitalized. And that's... Al learned his lesson from him. Yes. And that's crazy. Isn't that wild? Your 16-year-old brother. Well, but you broke the code. So... You lied. Right. Now you're in trouble. Well, you know what's really crazy to me about these dudes? Again, like, I, dichotomy, the duality of these men. Don't lie to me, but I can cheat on my wife all I want. Also, family above all else, except if you lie to me like i don't huh. right it's sort of a head scratcher it like, really I just, is it's so weird and dual sided i feel and... like these are a bunch of men who were probably like bipolar or some shit <laughs> and just didn't know what to do i my thought is is i can only imagine the kind of sense of power you feel with a situation like this yeah and then you just keep rising through the ranks and just feeling more and more mm. and more powerful yeah like, you become emboldened after a while yes emboldened that's a wonderful word yeah well said. vocab word of the day guys <laughs> so it's sort of terrifying that al's only 18 years old when he really fully puts the whole all He's hands in, all in. All we're we're in. doing it all. We're going for the gangster lifestyle. So he's completely immersed in this lifestyle by the age of 18. He's still a baby. You don't know. You don't know. Well, granted, back then, people <laughs> knew even I mean, less he knew, at 18. Yeah, but, but he also knew a lot. Right? Because, uh, Can you imagine, though, the shit that he's seen by the time he was 18? Especially if you started in gangs before the age of 14. Like, I don't. That's some hard living. 
I looked at this one. If I've he seen met, the movie Gangs of New York. I know. If, <laughs> if he met Johnny Torrio before he left for Chicago in 1909, mm-hmm. and he was born in 1899, mm-hmm. he was less than 10 years old <laughs> when he was doing shit with that dude. That sounds right. The fuck? Well, they would recruit the kids to be like their little, little thieves. Foot so- yeah, their little foot soldiers. <laughs> I don't like it. Badass little kids. <laughs> so... The Harvard Inn is where Al earned the nickname Scarface, which is one of my most favorite movies. Have you ever seen it? No. Oh my god, you guys. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be the sheltered one, Suze. I didn't want to tell her until now. <laughs> uh, we've got so many movies we're going to have to make each know, other watch. I know the big I know the big scene. I know yeah. like the most of it. Al Pacino is perfect of. in that movie. Oh my god, it's so good. It's a long one though, so we're gonna have to like Isn't plan he for to it. Be Cuban in that movie, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Well, close enough. Hey, you know what? <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a classic. It was what, the seventies. I can't quite remember. 70s I think so. Or, yeah, either way, it's a wild ride. So I can't believe it. During the summer months, the bar was always a hot spot, especially when a heat wave hit New York City in August of 1917. Al was there, as per usual, and he clocked a pretty girl named Lena coming into the bar with her brother. He approached her and asked if she would like to go on a walk with him. Always say no, ladies. Which she did. And he seemed to have accepted, at at first at least. Mm. Before the night is over, he asks her again. This time, she tells him that he was embarrassing her, and she turns to her brother and asks him to make Al stop in a nice way. Mm. And her brother was all too happy to do so. He asked the girls to go outside because it was Lena and the brother's girlfriend. They were all there together. He's like, ladies, go outside. Got some business to tend to. And as Lena was walking away... Al Capone allegedly yelled to her, quote, I'll tell you one thing. You got a nice ass, honey, and I mean that as a compliment. <gasps> How dare he? Scandalous. <gasps> Especially for 1917, you don't say, you don't say right? that. Right? <gasps> Especially to somebody, like, somebody's younger sister. That like you just met, who's a stranger to you. So, <laughs> bro is pissed. Wild. I rightfully so. And when Al wouldn't apologize, this dude pulls out a knife and he slashed Capone right in the face. And he got three cuts in before Al just fell to the ground, resulting in scars to his face. Which actually, you can see in some of his mug shots still. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously back then they didn't have plastic surgery on the level we do now. So I read... <laughs> you were probably lucky if you could get stitches in it and not, like, die of dysentery or in some sort of infection. So I had actually read that Frankie Yale, after this happened, had somebody go get this brother and bring him to the club and sit across from Al Capone and basically, like, you disfigured him permanently. Like, what are you going to do? And so he had to, like, pay money to Al Capone for disfiguring his face or something like that, but he had to borrow the money from Frankie Yale. Oh, Jesus. So he, like, got this dude, like, under his thumb. Like a snake eating its mm -hmm. tail. Like And, like... (sighs) basically manipulated Capone's injury into his own gang, which is classic mobster narcissism. I found that really interesting because this dude was like shit and bricks. He's like, I'm going to die today. (laughs) He didn't. He's so lucky that he didn't. He certainly is. And I think the reason, I mean, the fact that Frankie Yale saw an opportunity to make money, I think is the only reason that man was able to walk out of there. So I think there's only one thing that these style of gangsters liked more than Killing people was making money. Mm-hmm. I, I really do, honestly. Killing people was a means 
to an end in their business. That's why they that's why they looked at themselves as businessmen. They didn't look at themselves as murderers. That was just a part of the job. It was an unsavory part, but a part nonetheless. Oh my god, you guys, when I was doing the research, so many murders. So I, many I notes from I her. <laughs> I couldn't keep track of like who was in charge because everybody was dead. I found this really cool website called Timeline Toast. Oh. And you can search for things and it gives you like timelines. Good so that kind of really helped me put things Doing together in a cohesive in way. Time, I was like, oh my God, I can't keep track of this. I just kept notating and then going back and notating. And yeah. I probably meant multiple times was like, oh my God, fuck. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading your research. It's always fun. <laughs> um, so at any rate, this incident seemed to have only been the beginning of Al's crude and violent behavior. By the time he reached 21 years of age, he had done his fair share of dirty deeds. Very dirty. He had shot someone to death. Um, the winner of a neighborhood craps game, apparently, because Capone then stole the winnings after the murder. It read like he was pissed that he lost, so he was like, fuck you, and... That checks out. That's a horror... Bro, you're bad at cards. <laughs> Just let it go. Deal with it. You shouldn't be betting money like that if you suck at Take cards. Take the L. Just Move say. along, sir. Uh, he also allegedly assaulted a member of their rival gang. Um, he then left the lower level gang member for dead. This upset the leaders of the White Hand Gang and prompted a promise of retribution, which is how all of these things start. Mm -hmm. um, Frankie actually felt that it was no longer safe in New York for Al and his family. So they were relocated to Chicago because back then you could just be like, we're shipping you up to Chicago. Gotta go. Bye. Right. Um, the Capones arrived in the city in 1919, where Al began work as a bouncer at one of Johnny's brothels. Always a good idea. Um, shortly after Capone arrived on scene, Johnny's boss, Big Jim, was assassinated. Hmm. They don't know for sure who did it, but it was narrowed down to the most obvious suspects, either Frankie Yale or Al Capone performing the hit to make way for Johnny to become the leader. That's always how it goes. It's like spider webs and shit. It really, just... It really is just It grows wild. and grows and grows. It's wild. Nobody was ever actually charged with anything. Of course they weren't. Capone then became Johnny's right-hand man when Johnny inherited the leadership. With Prohibition in full swing, as you'll remember, these two and their crew began to take full advantage and they began brewing, distilling, and distributing beer and liquor. Over the years, Capone actually worked his way up to partner he had a bit of a reputation as a drinker and a troublemaker, which I know you'll find shocking. So shocking. I'm stunned. Stunned. But he did clean up his act a little bit when his family arrived from Brooklyn. His wife, son, mother, and siblings all moved into a modest home located in the middle class of Southside Chicago altogether. His father had passed away I not too long so. before that. Yeah, which made it fine for his mom to move because mm -hmm. what... For what? Stay for well, what? Well, and if my son was raking in a stupid amount of money. The money he was making then is a stupid amount of money now. So, uh, I don't... When they did the math, I literally was like, what? There were so many commas that mm -hmm. I was like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. I was just shocked. It was like, not millions, but like, I think hundreds of millions. I'm pretty it sure it was that point. Ridiculous. I was like, oh my... And again, that was in the 1920s, almost well, 1930s. Well, that was when a like, car cost like $100 and you could buy a house for like $500. Yeah, but like, I mean, the, like, it's still, the scale is just still crazy. Because, 
again, then it was a shit ton of money. Now it's still, even with, like... Well, apparently he was balling out of control with Packards. They were... <laughs> they Well, like I said, so yeah. the museum was very interesting. Yeah. It really was. Some of those 20s cars, though, and I have photos. I'm going to post them to the yeah. Instagram. They were flashy as fuck. I, <laughs> I was like... I did not know Packard's made cars like yeah, this. Yeah, she sent me pictures when she was gone. It was pretty cool. I was, like, astonished. And I'm going to have mm-hmm. to Google before we release the episode and see if that was, like, his brand of car. Oh, or yeah. Or if they're just, like, the docent that was working didn't have any idea, so. That checks for Warren. I like to ask questions. <laughs> I know, I do, too, and then I always <laughs> feel bad when I, like, caught somebody who, like, isn't as big of a nerd as me. Which is fine. They do actually, Warren, Ohio, just as a side note, we went to a really good barbecue place called Cockeye Barbecue. Mm. Fucking phenomenal. And then we went to a brewery. It was also phenomenal. Oh, it yeah. was on Dave Grawl Alley. I love it. I'm obsessed. <laughs> they let you make your own coasters. That is really cool. So if y'all are in Warren, Ohio, there's a Crime and Spirits podcast poster <laughs> out there floating around. I used to go there a lot as a kid because my mom's uh, side of the family's there. I did not know. Apparently, my my company's headquarters is also there. Fun fact: <laughs> my grand great grandfather, who had a tile and flooring business, mm, mm-hmm. may or may not in the mafia had at least ties to it, according to my family. I believe it. I believe it too, because there was a lot of shit. That's where I saw my first prostitute. Oh. In yeah. Warren, Ohio? Mm-hmm. What? She was walking across. She yeah. literally was, like, walking down the sidewalk. And I just am a very curious person. I was like, oh, like, I liked her jacket or something. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, sparkly jacket. Because I was, I was a kid. I was, like, nine. And my grandma was like, get in the house. Get in the house. Oh, no. And I was like, why? What was that? And I don't remember what she called. Some outdated term that we shouldn't be referring yeah. to sex workers as. Yeah. But, um, I will never forget that moment where That's I was like, hilarious. that was the first time I saw a sex worker. Literally, and my grand great grandmother's house was connected to by a fire escape the business oh. that my great grandfather had. Hmm. Because I remember going there when I, I didn't appreciate. I think I mentioned this before. I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid. I would have. I would love to go through it now because there was so much random shit in there. But my brother and I would go and like explore sometimes when we get bored. There is a lot of industrial stuff that looks mildly abandoned. Yeah, I'm not sure. It was a Sunday when we were there, and it was raining, so. I haven't don't been there in Sunday on Sundays yeah. in our neck of the woods for the most part. I haven't been there since my grandmother passed away, so it's been a long time oh, since well, I was in high we're school. We're going to the brewery and to the barbecue place. Well, and we'll also have Perhaps to go. The Packard Museum. <laughs> I'll have to swing by if it's still there. We used to go to the hot dog shop all the time. That was oh. like my grandpa's place. They had really good milkshakes. Interesting. So we'll have to squeeze in a milkshake. We didn't really explore. My sister had a GPS up on the phone, and it took us through a very quaint neighborhood mm-hmm. to get to the barbecue place. Instead of the main road. My Aunt Mary still lives out there, I'm pretty sure. But I would like to go when the weather's nuts. Yeah, we can plan a trip. That is my next goal. Yeah. Fun. Okay, side note. (laughs) Back to work. In 1924, Capone planned and executed the death of Joe Howard. This person had jumped and robbed an associate of Capone's. Somehow, someway, Al found out about what happened and orchestrated a hit. This led to a failed indictment, which really made prosecutor William McSwiggin. That's made up. That's his name, <laughs> McSwiggin. Super mad. And fun fact, he was known as the hanging prosecutor, and he really hated gangsters, apparently. Oh so there were witnesses to this hit, and McSwiggin 
thought that he had the shit like in the bag until these witnesses got scared and they refused to testify. And so he wasn't able to prosecute or take any charges against Capone. And this is just one of many examples of what Capone and Torrio's organization was capable of doing. It was so obvious to law enforcement what was happening, but it was difficult for those not on the mob's payroll to do anything about it. Because half of law enforcement was on the mob's payroll. So what we're just kind of trying to do is kind of just set the scene for you. Give Mm -hmm. you guys an idea of like what led up to their business dealings were like their day-to-day. Like this was their day-to-day life. Isn't that wild? It is. You just sit around and orchestrate murders? In flashy suits. Huh. In fancy with, cars. With men named Big Jim and Bugs. And lots of pretty ladies. I mean. <laughs> All right. So another example took place later that year. Al Capone took out rival gang leader Dean O'Banion. So here's where things really all sort of tie together mm-hmm. like a nice little bow. Dean was the boss of the Northside Gang in Chicago, and they did not care for the Southside outfit. Interestingly enough, O'Banion and Torrio worked out a deal in 1921 that was meant to establish some kind of, like, shaking of the hands, like, peace between the rivals. However, as with anything with gangs, (laughs) this didn't last too long. Um, There was a third gang that came in, the Jenna Brothers West Side Gang, who were actually aligned with Johnny, and they decided to try and expand into O'Banion's territory. Obviously, this didn't go well. Things no. went awry for Dean because he refused to forgive a gambling debt that belonged to a member of the Jenna's gang. Johnny showed up at Dean's flower shop under the guise of a friendly visit. With him were some quote-unquote associates, the one and only Frankie Yale, and a couple of hitmen from the other gang, the Jenna's. Within a few minutes of their arrival, O'Banion was dead, shot to death, this led to Jaime Weiss taking over as leader of the Northside gang, and he, of course, as is tradition, vowed to get his revenge someday, some way. I can't help but feel like one of the Jenna boys being indebted to O'Banion was a setup. Yes. Like, I feel like that was just the plan from the beginning, was for him not to pay back this debt. Right. To set up O'Banion to see what he would do. Yep. Well, Tracks, I wouldn't right? have forgiven it either. Well, no, I don't blame the man Ooh. for, like, doing his business, but I just... He owned a flower shop, though, and they killed him outside of a flower shop. I mean, that, the flower I was shop like, was oh, a no. front. I don't care. Flowers. <laughs> She's like, flowers, though. Everybody else is like, we've got a restaurant or a brothel. I'm like, oh... I like the flower shop. The flower angle. shop would definitely be more conspicuous, in my opinion. So I can totally... That was smart, at least. Give O'Banion props there. Right. What are you going to do, I guess? So they attempted their revenge in January 1925. Weiss, along with Bugs Moran and Vincent Drucci, followed the limos of Al and Johnny one day while they were heading to a restaurant. This is really fucked up. Weiss and his associates rained down a hail of gunfire upon their rivals. But neither Al nor Johnny were hurt. Because of course not. One of his bodyguards or his driver did lose their life in Mm -hmm. this altercation. Twelve days later, Weiss and Moran execute another attack. This time, Johnny was their sole target. He was shot several times right outside his home. He survived, but it was touch and go there for a couple of weeks. They genuinely did not know if he was going to make it. It scared the shit out of him, too. Yep, sure did. Once he was fully recovered, he had a light jail sentence to serve. He was convicted of bootlegging after the O'Banion hit. 
this is another theme you'll see with mobsters is that they will get they will get prosecuted for literally whatever somebody can charge them with. It's that's literally you throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, one is how the charges go. How appropriate and go. <laughs> During this stint in the county jail, Johnny essentially handed control of his empire over to Al, and at 26 years old, Al Capone became the youngest crime boss in American history. That's wild. 26. I would not want to be in charge of anything at 26. No, I barely want to be in charge of myself at 33. I'm, psh. He was advised by his predecessor to keep a low profile, and Al did the complete opposite. Quite, quite literally the exact opposite. <laughs> From 1925 to 1929, he was the most visible mobster in the country. He was known to be violent and ruthless, yet charismatic and charming. Like Seuss was saying earlier, people kind of looked at him as like a... A good-intentioned, bad guy version of Robin Hood. People liked him. He they, was they, well-liked in the media. And, and in the neighborhood, people were like, oh, well, he does so much for us. And I was like... And that and that's like, kind of their everybody? gig, right? Like, well, the protection. Like, well, that's yeah. a huge aspect I mean, I of guess it. There's that. But as you guys are seeing, it was the wild fucking West. <laughs> but it's all fun and games till somebody's grand grandson or son... It comes with a lot of caveats when you accept those, like these kinds of protections and whatnot. So it was a double-edged sword. It was so fascinating to me, though, to see how people like took him. So he was quoted saying things like, "Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. I'm kind to everyone, but when someone is unkind to me, weak is not what you are going to remember about me." That sounds. Scary. That speaks to <laughs> this weird Robin Hood duality bullshit that we're talking about. Like, that quote kind of encapsulates his whole demeanor. Another favorite of mine is, you can go a long way with a smile. You can go a lot farther with a smile and a gun. Ooh. How? Which, I mean, I kind of like that one. <laughs> Shit. It was, in, it, like, he's not wrong, though. No, that's You know, that's correct. the thing. Like, he's a very smart man. Which was interesting to learn throughout all this. I never thought he was, like, stupid, but digging into him a bit more was fascinating. So, it's definitely impossible to prove, but at the end of the day, Al Capone was responsible for hundreds of deaths over the course of his rule. As we said, he was ruthless. Any establishment that didn't buy from him or align with the Southside outfit found themselves to be in big, big trouble. Oh, yeah. He also had a thing for blowing these places up. I love how that was how he dealt with it. Like, oh, you don't want to buy from me? Who cares? Blow it up. Blow it up. (laughs) Um, It's been said that as many as 100 people died in these kinds of incidents alone throughout the 1920s. Again, not proven. Right. Not tied to him at all. We're just saying. But it's pretty safe to assume. Yes. Um, Over the years, Al Capone became something of a national celebrity. He liked the finer things in life. He loved custom suits, good cigars, good food, lots of pretty ladies, fancy jewelry, pinky rings, and everything else. Several several rings. What is it with mobsters and pinky rings, though? I don't actually understand it either. That (laughs) That would feel uncomfortable to me. They're also very, like, large rings. They do get tend to have, like, the big ones with the big stone or the big face on the front. Maybe mm. so when you smack somebody, it breaks their teeth out. I was just going to say, maybe it was an Italian thing, too. Because my papa, his 
parents were from Italy, Rome, and Sicily, respectively. And they immigrated here. And he had rings like that. Because I have one somewhere. Well, I always think of the Pope, because I think of, like, mm. Sophia and, like, oh, this the Pope's ring. And oh, I'm like, yeah. Or steal the Pope's ring. I was going to say. But I always think of, like... Yeah. A big, huge, like, signet ring. Maybe like, we're on to something here. It might could be. Um, so Al, because he's in charge now, he moved the headquarters of his operations from Cicero to Chicago. He had used bribery and intimidation to take over the town council elections. This move made it more difficult for the Northside gang to target him, but also gave him the visibility that he had come to love and enjoy and bask in. Well, and the, the thing about the town council elections is important, too, because they had to move to Cicero initially when Torio was still in charge because of the mayor that they had. You know, there's always, in every one of these stories, there's always, like, a really well-to-do, like, good-natured, well-intentioned local politician that's like, we're going to crack down on crime. crime. And so in this instance, it did kind of force them out a little bit, but he was all too happy to come back into the city. So now we're going to kind of start getting into the chain of events that led up to the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where we stand in our story now. Basically, everyone was trying to hurt and or kill each other all of the Literally, time. Like, I don't know how anybody left their house. Like, if I would have had <laughs> a be safe scary. room, I'd just be sitting in there with my hurricane whiskey <laughs> or my hurricane rum yeah. and, like, a bunch of canned goods. Like, just talk to me when it's over. There were revenge murders and there were fights over territory. It was a fucking mess. Like a hot mess. And then one fateful evening on April 27, 1926. Prosecutor William McSwiggin was gunned down. But what was he, Bree, what was he doing? You guys, he was out with some gangsters, <laughs> drinking, riding around. How did they they went to some speakeasies together. Turns out these were his friends since fucking childhood, and they just so happened to be beer runners. So he put on the blinders for his buddies. Interesting, considering his line of work. I mean, uh, to a degree, yes. Yeah. But if you're going to be like Mr. McCardnuts on organized crime right. you can't be like ah, but it's fine it just it <laughs> was so well and like obviously it didn't really do him well in the end because this night capone heard that two of his rivals were enjoying a night out on the town and he decided can't have that so he ordered his men to seek them out and kill them turns out these dudes were mcswiggin's friends and he got oh. caught in the crossfire quite literally and all three of the men died and now this caused the police to start raiding Capone's businesses, looking for any kind of evidence that he was responsible for this. And in response, Capone tried to call for a peace conference among the city's criminals. He, I think he just wanted to get the heat off of him a little bit. So he was like, can everybody Absolutely. just like chill like, while this happens? Like chill, maybe they'll get off my nuts. Right? Well, and he also went into hiding for like two or three months when this happened because, you know, he had right. accidentally, admittedly accidentally, like killed this prosecutor kind of sort of and well because that's the problem with hired hands yep especially when they're murderers yep. you don't exactly i don't think they cared who they were mowing down with their yeah. tommy guns they were just like we we're just doing it right this is our job now we're mission accomplished and everybody's <laughs> dead like i just oh my god it's that's a lot. Y'all are crazy. And, like, of course, like Sue said, nothing lasts with these guys. This peace agreement only lasted two months. Yeah. So, basically, by the time Capone was back in the city, all bets were off. 
That's never a good thing. Mm-mm. So that brings us back around to Jaime Weiss. Remember him? Remember him. Rumor has it that he was the only man Al Capone was truly afraid of, and boy, did he know how to hold a grudge. With his first attempt at taking Al's life, um, when that was foiled, he tried again on September 20th, 1926. Weiss led a group of sedans past the Hawthorne Hotel in Chicago, where Capone had unofficially established his headquarters. Weiss had many members of the Northside gang with him, and they were able to surround the entire block, which, if you've ever been to Chicago, that's a big fucking block. Especially in the city city, like, whoa. This dude is, like, not fucking around. Well, and, like, I thought Al Capone was scary, but I'm gonna have to look into him a little more, because he seems terrifying. I did very Like a dog with a bone, like, he will not let go. As soon as O'Banion died... He had his sights set on Capone and that. There was nothing. No, he couldn't see anything else. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the men that were surrounding this whole block just proceeded to shoot up literally everything, trying to get even one shot off at Al Capone. It was just pure freaking chaos. And by some miracle, because of course, (laughs) Al didn't have a scratch on him by the time it was all said and done. There was a lot of damage and Capone was definitely in danger. Weiss wasn't letting this go, however, and things were only going to escalate from there. Capone first tried making a truce with the Northsiders, but they came back with a big hail to the fucking no-no. After all of this, there was no, no way Weiss no. was giving him that. Nice try. Thank you, bye. No way! So, uh, this left Capone with no choice. He had to make a move. Obviously, uh, it's going to be a vicious one. About three weeks later... Weiss and four of his men were gunned down with buckshot and submachine gun bullets as they were entering their headquarters. The gunfire came from a nearby second-story window. Weiss, along with one of his men, was killed instantly because, I, you know, buckshot comes out of the gun and then just spreads into mm-hmm. metal pellets. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Like, these what? dudes were like, not let me shoot you, but also tear you apart. Well, and back then they didn't have bulletproof gear like right. we have now, so it was just like a good luck kind of thing. Well, and it's just crazy because this is just how it was in Chicago at the time. Can you even imagine just like walking down the street? No. Like, we just guns firing How did people the live their lives? Or run a business or function as a normal Any person? Any kind like... of anything. The violence between the different gangs and mobs, they just increase over time. With Weiss out of the picture, Bugs Moran became Capone's biggest rival. See, Bugs had a problem with the fact that Capone was involved with prostitution. This is the hill he's going this was to the fight line on for him. He not was Catholic. the murder, not the not no. the murder, not the extortion. Oh, he was raised Catholic, so you can't be having sex all willy-nilly. Killing a motherfucker? Fine. Sex? Hard no. Catholics do have some very specific rules. <laughs> I'm pretty Long sure murder was short. also not okay. I, isn't that but... one of the seven deadly yeah. sins? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, I think it's like what, like the first commandment is thou shalt not murder. But no, prostitution is the problem here. I, I just don't get it. Gotta draw your line somewhere? I say with question mark. Right, I guess. I mean, I guess I guess I can appreciate it. I will say. Like, I can appreciate At least a criminal has who has some kind of morality, something in there that's like, this This is my line, but I'm just confused about it. I just have some questions. 
So for three long years, Capone and Moran were locked in a violent and deadly Wild West-like warfare, which culminated in what we know today as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. At approximately 10.30 a.m. on February 14, 1929, seven of Moran's men were murdered. Two men, who were disguised as police officers, entered the warehouse and they pretended that they were executing a raid. Two officers, quote-unquote, had the men line up in front of a wall, which was common to have happened during a raid. It's kind of like what the police officers did. They lined everybody up. Once in place, the two, quote-unquote, officers were joined by two more men that were dressed as civilians. They pulled machine guns out from their jackets, and they just opened fucking fire. They sprayed bullets from left to right, back and forth, until all seven men hit the floor. Literally. And with Tommy guns, it's got that drum that's just like... (laughs) It just keeps going and going till it's empty. Mm -hmm. (sighs) I think they said, like, over 70 bullets. There were... In this instance alone. I forget what the exact number is, but yeah. you're right. They do know the exact number. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was over 70 because I remember, like, thinking, like, holy shit, like, almost 100. Also, why? That's a lot. Overkill. Excessive. Rage? Much? Unnecessary. So, needless to say, Bugs Moran lost some significant people that day. His second-in-command, the gang's bookkeeper... The business manager, some enforcers, all around bad dudes, but they were very important to his everyday operation type of deal. Um, Al Capone was not fucking around. No. One man named Frank Gusenberg was still alive when authorities arrived on scene. He had suffered 14 bullet wounds um, and was able to be stabilized at least for a short period of time. Police did try to question him about what happened. Um, it was alleged that while still at the scene, Gusenberg gasped out that, quote-unquote, cops did it. But when police asked him who shot him later at the hospital, he replied, quote-unquote, no one shot me. Yeah. Snitches get stitches, Seuss. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. Or bullet wounds. <laughs> right. Obviously. Um, he literally died no more than three hours later. Police found a couple of eyewitnesses that claimed to have seen the men in uniforms lead the men wearing suits out of the warehouse at gunpoint. Other witnesses talked about how they said a fancy black Cadillac mm. pulled up and several men had gotten out and walked into the garage. Per the eyewitness accounts, the driver wore a very expensive looking chinchilla top coat and gray fedora. Cadillacs are fancy. They sure is. My grandma had one when I was a kid. It was white with red leather interior. Ooh. It was fucking sweet. Especially back then, though, too. I was like nine or ten or so when she had it, and man, did I feel fucking cool when she picked me up from school. Hell yeah. I would have been like, beep, beep. Grandma. I have such a vivid memory of like listening to Leanne Rhymes Blue in, in that car with my grandma. I would expect nothing less. It was an interesting, she was an interesting lady. So, police were able to piece together that a couple of the gunmen dressed as officers so they could get into the warehouse without any issue. Obviously, Moran's men weren't going to just, like, let any strange Dick or Harry roll up. What witnesses saw after the shooting was the men responsible pretending to arrest slash be arrested. So, like, witnesses saw men being led out by gunpoint. Those were all Capone's dudes or people that were in on this plan. They were just pretending. Right. To they, make were it all, look, they were all dressed to fit the part. To basically. make it look good. 
They had to, like, get... They also had to get out of there after said shooting. So, Moran was on his way to the warehouse when all of this was going down, and he missed getting killed by mere minutes. Literally minutes. The plan was, allegedly, to lure Moran to the warehouse, take him maybe a couple of his guys out. And like I said, he just missed all the action thanks to being behind schedule that day. And when he got to the warehouse, he saw a police car near the building and he turned the fuck around. A few days after the massacre, he told reporters that, quote, only Capone kills like that. Ooh, ouch. Now, at the time of this occurring, Al Capone was in Florida. The man had an airtight alibi at that because he was talking to federal agents about the murder of Frankie Yale along with answering some questions about his own personal finances. I literally was typing it, and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. When reporters reached out to Capone, because, of course, they called Florida, and they're like, ring, ring, what do you have to say about this? And he was all too happy to be like, this is what I have to say. He said, and I quote, the only man who kills like that is Bugs Moran. Oh, my God, you guys. They're like teenage girls. They are worse Who are fighting over a boy. Actually. (laughs) So, on the 22nd of February, police actually find a 1927 Cadillac sedan that had been disassembled and partially burned in in a Mm. garage. Hmm. I I happen to recollect somebody liking fire in the story. I find that suspicious. Mm -hmm. It was determined by law enforcement that the men responsible for the mass murder had used that specific vehicle... Police were actually able to trace the engine number to a Michigan Avenue car dealer who sold the vehicle originally. The garage in which this burned up car was found was rented, coincidentally, by a man who had ties to Capone, the Purple Gang, which were allies of Capone from Detroit, and had allegedly, according to some old ladies, (laughs) rented rooms across the street from Moran's warehouse, as well as other questionable characters. One of these questionable characters was a man named Fred Burke, who was a former member of the Egan's Rats gang, which was a... What name? It was, a. It was again, yet another offshoot of yeah. a gang somewhere else. Um, he and a buddy of his were actually known to wear police uniforms when they went on a robbery spree. Oh, sounds familiar. How strange. Um, Fred also happened to be a fugitive at the time of the massacre. He was finally located in mid-December when he got super drunk, stole and crashed some cars, and then killed a police officer who was questioning him about the stealing and the destroying and of the crashing cars. of the cars. <laughs> so he was using an alias to rent a bungalow that was subsequently raided by law enforcement. I know this is dark and twisty, but it's all going to make sense. It all comes together. We promise. So in this bungalow, they found a bunch of stolen bonds, a bulletproof vest, and most importantly, a shit ton of guns and ammunition. After some ballistic testing, which I assume is just shooting it into a wall or something like i don't know how i they always did it picture then. um i picture him into the water on CSI, <laughs> like, pew, pew. and i always picture there's a scene from uh one of the batman movies where christian bale is doing the same thing he's like doing ballistic tests to figure oh, out who shot him interesting that's what i just love well, how batman, we have <laughs> what would you shoot it into though right like i mean that? i don't know i would assume so that's what that's what batman was doing i think it did say ballistic <laughs> testing, so yeah. at any rate, we learned that two of the submachine guns in Fred Burke's bungalow matched not only what was used in the massacre, but also what was used in the murder of Frankie Yale. Oh, <gasps> you guys. Dun, dun, dun. 
Um, Burke was eventually tried and convicted of the murder of the police officer, but nobody actually ever asked him any more questions about any of the ballistic results or how or why he had guns used in a massacre, which killed seven people, <laughs> right. and the murder of mob boss Frankie Yale. Right. Who was not... Or the shooting of Frankie Yale. Who was not... He was well known. Right. Like, hmm. Yale was also relatively well known. So, I have questions here, police officers. Again, somebody's palms were greased with hundreds of dollar bills. Or they were just like, let's just get these dudes in jail. Like, let's not ask any more questions. Let's just get them in jail. I could see that also to an extent. So police went on to name a few suspects, some gunmen that worked for Capone, John Scalise, and Jack McGurn eventually get charged with the massacre. Allegedly, Scalise was heard bragging that he was, quote unquote, the most powerful man in Chicago, which... Joke's on him Ooh. because Capone killed him and a couple others in May of 1929. Of course he did. Capone learned that these wise guys were planning to kill him, so he beat the men to death with a baseball bat during a dinner party. And a little fun fact about this, there's a movie in which one of my most favorite actors, Robert De Niro, played a character that was modeled after Capone, the Untouchables. Oh, yeah. I didn't know... I've seen the Untouchables, but I didn't really put the connection that it was meant to be depicted of Capone's life. So this scene is in the movie. And according to some pretty reliable sources, it fucking happened. Like, crazy. They say allegedly online. And I was like... Baseball bat. Three men. Knowing what I know about Al Capone... Check, 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 check. And then they just, like, went and had dinner. Like, they just continued dinner. Could you imagine <laughs> sitting at that table? I don't think anybody was ah ha though. I'm pretty sure they were just like, oh, the fuck? I would have been mainlining that rocket whiskey. I'm like, I actually, you know what? I have somewhere else to be, anywhere else leave. to be. What if you're next? Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. Terrifying. I mean, you're not wrong. Terrifying. What followed all of this senseless violence was an outcry from the public for an end to this shit. They were finally at their fucking limit. Well, again, how would you go about your daily life right. with just bullets flying everywhere? <laughs> Every which it's way. Wild. Capone was named public enemy number one, and federal law enforcement began keeping an eye on him even further, especially after he failed to appear before a grand jury that he was subpoenaed for in the spring of 1929. He claimed to have been too unwell to show up to court. Quote, unquote, I'm sick. (laughs) On June 5th, 1931, the U.S. government is finally able to charge Capone with something. And this something ends up being 22 counts of income tax evasion. Arrogant as always, Capone wasn't worried about having to do much jail time. And he ended up agreeing to a plea bargain that would have him serving about two and a half years. However... (laughs) thankfully for our story the judge presiding over the case was not on board with the plea agreement and he literally was like no yeah i refuse to honor this not doing that please come back try again so capone withdrew his guilty plea and on they went to trial capone tried his very best to bribe basically anyone and everyone that he could and when that didn't work he attempted to intimidate them instead however the judge God bless this man. Mm-hmm. Brought in a whole new jury who went on to find Al Capone guilty and sentenced him to eleven years in actual jail. <laughs> I just love it was like a it was like a chess game. Like it was. Capone made a move and he was like, No motherfucker. It's just a giant Here's a new jury. Dick measuring <laughs> contest. 
But in this instance, I mean, I think that was smart. This judge was like, no way, motherfucker, are you walking out of this place? I wonder if he was armed and locked and loaded 24-7. You'd have to be, don't you think? I would would move out of Chicago after that. I'd be like, you know what? If I have a wife and kids, get in the car. We got to go. We're we're out. Or at least you're out till I can join you out there. Right. Get the fuck out. (laughs) So, in 1934, Al Capone was sent to Alcatraz. Hey, if mm-hmm. you want to talk about that, check out our episode. I think it's pretty incredible. But that was also a very interesting... <laughs> that was very interesting also. Um, from what I read, he did serve a pretty cushy sentence. Oh, of course. Because he could pay people to bring in the nice things. Mm-hmm. However, justice sometimes takes a while, but yep. it does get there. Um Capone served just under seven years, and then he was released to a mental health hospital or mental hospital in Baltimore. Why, you may ask? Why a mental hospital? He was diagnosed with syphilis of the brain Mm. in 1938. Syphilis. In fact, he basically spent his last year Alcatraz completely confused and totally disoriented. Syphilis is, yeah. In her research, when Suze was like, he started working at the brothel, she literally was like, this is probably where he got the syphilis. <laughs> I literally was like, this is it. Mm-hmm. This With is like it. A, the throwing up emoji, the Mr. Cool. Yuck. <laughs> and, and literally from everything I read, he and his wife had a just fine relationship. Sure. They had a kid. Everything but was great. The but men like... were allowed to do, this is, I mean, there's a lot of this stuff that I don't enjoy that's unsavory. But this is the one that really sticks in my craw. Men can do whatever they want. Women had to stay at home and stay faithful. So I did read, um, had he taken, there was some drug, I I forget what the name of it specifically was, but had he taken that when he first realized he had it, Mm. he could have avoided all of that. I'm sure. Or at least most of it. Or at least prolonged. Do we know? Put it off. If he knew. I didn't find anything that said one way or the other. Did he know before? I mean, you're dipping your dipstick all over the place. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I, I've they never had, had anything they like had that. They had to have so. had tests for stuff like that. I don't know. If they had a treatment for syphilis, that's my a fair point. Is they had to have that's a fair point. Positive or negative test at the very least. I'm very grateful. I've never had to like I know. navigate oh that. Ooh. But reading this, I just thought of the gym teacher from Mean Girls. <laughs> you will get chlamydia. And you will die. Oh, no. Oh, no. They have tests for that, children, if you need help. Yeah. Chlamydia is treatable. Go get yes. it taken care Dear of. Dear Lord. So is syphilis, I'm pretty sure, actually. Here's your public health outcry for the episode. Now, back in 1935, police drop a bit of a bombshell. They had captured a man named Byron Bolton, an associate of the Egan's Rats Gang, and it was revealed that he was involved in the massacre. His confession was leaked by a newspaper. It was reported that Bolton had claimed that the plan to murder Moran was plotted in the fall of 1928 in Wisconsin. And this checks out. I sure do. When you consider the fact that the stolen bonds found in the raided bungalow from earlier. From Frank Burke. Mm-hmm. He, they belonged to a Wisconsin bank. Hmm, weird. But allegedly, the men spent two to three weeks hunting, fishing, and plotting a mass murder. I always think of the Luke Bryan song, hunting, fishing, <laughs> loving every minute, planning a murder. <gasps> it was like it was like a meeting of the minds of people yeah. that wanted to kill Bugs Moran, basically. Pretty like, much. They're like, how mm-hmm. can we do this? According to Byron, there were two drivers and four shooters that day. 
Bolton was the lookout, and he was the one that had supposedly gave the go-ahead. So there, he thought that Moran had arrived on scene. He mistook somebody, probably that fancy gray fedora-wearing dude. And he went on to say that they were pretty surprised to find out that Moran wasn't actually there. So they just started shooting and got out. Because why wouldn't you just... Well, at that point, you were, like... Fully committed to, like, the gun You just (laughs) took your, like, six-month plan, put it into place, and now what? I mean, I guess, but... I just don't... I think that when these guys had to pivot, it was just violence and death. Like, there wasn't a pivot to another plan. I think when in doubt, just start shooting. Yeah. They had a plan and no B plan. Plan B was the shooting. Right. (laughs) Terrifying. It is terrifying. So, these claims were actually later corroborated. One of the widows said in both an official statement with the FBI, as well as her own personal memoirs, that her husband and his friends had formed a special crew that was used by Capone for high-risk jobs. The Capone trusted them, these men specifically, and nicknamed them, quote-unquote, the American Boys. Mm. After Bolton's highly publicized confession, a man named Frank T. Farrell wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, which, if you'll remember, cracking down on literally everybody. FBI, (laughs) all that jazz. (laughs) The letter was written on January 28, 1935. In this letter... Frank revealed that he had been doing some undercover investigation. They don't specify what that means. Nope. But he did have some information to share. He had some things to talk about. He said that if the feds actually chose to check Chicago police logs, they would find the shooting of a 40-year-old man named William Davern Jr. He was a former firefighter and the son of a Chicago police surgeon. Excuse me, sergeant. I don't know why I it's said It's been a surgeon. long day. We're tired. <laughs> So, he was, William Davern Jr. was shot in the stomach in November of 1928 at C&O Restaurant during a bar fight. This restaurant also, just as another facet, (laughs) happened to be a popular gangster hangout. No way. I find that shocking. I'm stunned. After being shot, Davern was carried to a car, driven to a corner not far away, and literally dumped. He was spouting blood but somehow managed to crawl to a call box and call for help. At the hospital, he hung on for around a month before he succumbed to his injuries. During this time, he wouldn't reveal to the police who had shot him. However, he did tell his first cousin, William White, who the perp actually was. He gave White several names, including one of the Gussenberg brothers, which, if you'll recall, Mm. is one of the people who was gunned down. Now, William, three-fingered Jack White, (laughs) was a scary dude. With a name like that? All right. Why do you only have three fingers? Good good question. That's what I want to know. That leads me to believe that you only have three fingers. Some shit happened. (laughs) He was beady-eyed and bald. He was also missing two of his fingers on his right hand. It was either from a childhood accident or a blown safe gone awry. No one really knows for sure. Everything I read was like... I think he preferred to keep it mysterious. I was just going to say, he probably just wanted to keep everybody guessing. Yep. With a name like Three-Fingered Jack, why would you not? I love it. Missed opportunity. He had a long and quite savage rap sheet, if you would. When once involved in a robbery, he found out one man had ratted them out, found his address, 
disguised his men as police officers, and then sent them to murder him while he slept. While he slept, though. Ruthless. He liked to use cop uniforms because he felt that people trusted them more and only noticed the uniform and the badge and didn't really pay attention to a lot of other facial details, etc., etc. I feel as though anybody that does crime that uses a police uniform relies on that. Oh, that. Thousand percent. Because you're so scared you won't pay attention to any detail. Exactly. <laughs> Terrifying. Now, allegedly, when his cousin died, he went on a revenge war path. Like, he was just hell-bent on making somebody pay for this. He reached out to the Gusenberg brother who had been involved in his cousin's death, told him he was planning a factory stick-up to steal the payroll and that he needed some manpower to help him out. White knew how to get uniforms. Because he knew a lot of crooked cops. As we've mentioned several times, it kind of goes hand in hand with the shit. Now, in this case, he may have even requested the help of his uncle, Sergeant William J. Davern, the father of the murdered cousin. Which adds yet another onion layer. Here we are. We finally reached our onion. Because wouldn't the dad also want some sort of revenge? Right. Even if it's like, you do with these uniforms what you will. I don't want to know about it, but here you go. Like, I'm going to set these out on the stoop and, oh no, they're gone. What happened? What happened to them? Shortly after this massacre occurred, the St. Valentine's Day one, two witnesses came forward with info that was filed away and just kind of forgotten about. So one man said, quote, just about the time I arrived in front of the place, an automobile I thought was a police squad car stopped in front of the garage. There were five men in it. The fellow who stayed at the wheel had a finger missing. His hand was spread out on the steering apparatus, so the old amputation was apparent. Hmm. The police never followed this lead. (sighs) I'm telling you, if bad police work could be like a theme from back then. Honestly. Shoot. So, just as another weird coincidence, William White actually worked as a federal informant in the early 1930s. Because what? It could be, theorizing here, (laughs) that the FBI knew about his involvement in the massacre and covered it up to keep the good info coming in for them without, like, high reward, low risk kind of deal. Yeah. Um, White was actually murdered. Mm. As they so often are in January of 1934, because some of his peers actually figured out that he was a rat. Snitches get stitches and end up in ditches. Right. Um, He was killed at home. The killers were never caught. Um, When J. Edgar Hoover actually received Farrell's letter, letter, he said that the massacre was a matter for local police, but not for the FBI. (laughs) LOL. (laughs) What? (laughs) Really? I feel like this literally has, like, federal jurisdiction written all over it, but okay. It's a crime syndicate, very clearly. You do you, Hoover, I guess. <laughs> so, just as a side note, Farrell was never heard from again. Attempts to locate his family were completely unsuccessful. Which is weird. What? We're going to link the article if you want to read the yeah. article. It's freaking amazing. It was really good. Um... My other idea is that the powers that be just wanted Capone for something or anything. So they left the cloud of suspicion for this crime. They let it hang over him until they could get him on the tax fraud, lock him up, whatever, whatever. I just can't believe that they had the weapons used in the massacre 
and another murder. Right. And never asked any questions about it. Not a single one. So you went through all the ballistics testing and then just were like, eh, it's good. You went through the, the whole rigmarole of having, like, pers- doing a raid in the first place. Right. What? <sighs> it just... <sighs> And then when the letter with actual proof that the massacre could be just an emotional revenge thing shows up, it's just overlooked. It's a local thing. Right. Like, I've never heard the FBI say it's just a local thing. Right? Like, the FBI is always like, let me get in on this. Right. I watch Criminal Minds. Uh, we know what that is. Oh, God. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't really know how it goes. Not at I'm all. Just saying, back then, I know that they had, I think they just wanted to get Capone on something or anything. Yeah. So, technically, the massacre remains unsolved right technically nobody knows who done it mm-hmm. i'm gonna say it's some weird contrived crazy plan oh for sure you know i love my conspiracy theories <laughs> well i think that one guy i mean coming out and saying the things that he said it just all like lines up really well it all checks out the detail of like the wisconsin banknotes and things like that it just makes sense Apparently, they had, like, a hunting lodge up there, and it was very mm. remote, so everybody just drove their fancy cars up there and parked them in snowbanks and just... Hung out. Talked They murder. went hunting and fishing and plotted a murder. Yeah, right? <laughs> Luke Bryan, if you're looking for a new line, I'm just saying. <laughs> it just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. Oh, man. And on that note, this is going to be where we leave you today. So thank you guys so much for hanging out. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. Please make sure that you guys are following us on Instagram and Facebook. We are at Crime and Spirits Pod. You can also find us on Twitter at Crime Spirits Pod. If you'd like to follow us personally, you can find both of us on Instagram. I am at Bree, B-R-E-E underscore, not the cheese. And I am at Suze, not Susan. Don't call her Susan. Don't you dare. (laughs) Um, if you like what we're doing, just please, perhaps, pretty please, pretty please, with sugar on top, consider leaving us a rating and or a review over on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred platform may be. It would really help us out, um, just be found more organically, pop up maybe in searches a little sooner, and we would just also really appreciate it. We'd love to know what you guys are thinking, how you're feeling. Absolutely. What you like, what you don't like. While we're at it, if you have any specific drink suggestions, um, subject requests, anything that you want to talk about, we're interested in. Yeah. So just shoot us a message, personally or to the podcast. Either way, we'll get it. We'll get back to you. Yeah, we've got... You can reach us in several different ways. You can DM us on any of the social medias. I also have started adding our email address to our posts. So whatever you feel more comfortable with. Absolutely. One or both of us has access to all of those avenues. So you will get us directly. Yes. At least one it's of us. It's never going to be a bot. <laughs> no, never. It's, we do this I, all ourselves. <laughs> I have way too many control issues, guys. That will never be a thing. Absolutely. <laughs> I am a Virgo after all. We don't let control. <laughs> we don't let control go. <laughs> we don't let it go. And so one last thing before we leave each other today. We just want to make sure that you guys are being safe and smart when it comes to your alcohol consumption. You know, it's one thing to hang out and have a drink with us. We crack some jokes. We make light of some things that are a little bit serious. But at the end of the day, it's all about safety first. Don't do something stupid. Don't try to drive your car. There's no excuse for it. Get an Uber. Get, get an Uber. Uber. Call somebody. Hopefully someday we'll have an Uber code to give you. Fucking call me. Like, I'll come get you if you're close enough. I'll send you an Uber. I will figure it out. You know, order some food. 
drink a glass of water, and just hang out. We're just hanging out, having a good time. We thank you guys. We love and appreciate you so very much. Hope you have a great rest of your day, and we will catch up with you guys next week. Bye. Bye.